welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on reading through Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. And we'll be starting a new section all about totalitarian propaganda. And so this episode will cover the first half of the discussion up to really the first break that occurs in the book. So for this episode then we'll be starting off talking about the role of indoctrination, then propaganda in the outside world, then the role of science and history, then rounding off talking about the role of the leader as a prophet, as well as how then violence and terror fits into that at the same time. So, starting us off on indoctrination. And as it says, once totalitarian movements take power, propaganda is replaced by indoctrination. And immediately you think to yourself, oh, hold up a minute. How exactly does things work before they take power? And that is through trying to gain new members. As we touched on in previous episodes before, we have that lovely concept of the indifferent mass, this politically neutral mass of people which don't lean one way or the other, but are crucially important when it comes down to voting periods in which political parties will try and sway this indifferent mass in order for them to vote for the party and as well as it's important for gaining new members for political parties at the same time. And so this is the tactics in which you have the totalitarian movements before gaining power is comparable to the ways in which political parties would gain membership through this indifferent mass. The difference then occurs between the totalitarian movements and a traditional political party is because the person joining the totalitarian movement, be it the Bolshevik party in Russia or the Nazi party in Germany, they act as a disruptive force in order to try and bring the whole thing down. And of course, as we touched upon before as well, how does it work normally for political parties? They gain new members and that new member would back up whatever the ideology is. We be it left-leaning, arguing for the environment and so forth, they would ultimately just get another person to back up whatever it is. But here specifically with the whole period before gaining power is all about having not only getting new members, but also having them as that disruptive force in order to try and get a foothold in a position of power. And examples we've had previously as well is the Nazis' infiltration of the police force, for instance. So, once they take power then, 
the role of propaganda is replaced by indoctrination. And this is ultimately to get people of the country into believing its ideology, having the masses of people associate with a specific group. In this case, if it's in Germany, it's with the Nazis, or in Russia with the Bolsheviks. And the whole point about this, of course, is why is indoctrination so important is because it tries to get all those people that ultimately are sympathizers, that is people who's not fully accepted the ideology, party members as well who cannot be reliably dominated, which is another way to put it as they think too freely for themselves and are too critical of what's been said and must learn to toe the party line, as well as all those just other people in the country that are still within all this neutral mass. So we have those points then. What is the whole role once gaining power once you have that foothold, get more people on board with your ideology. Then this will be continuing to get members from that indifferent mass, as well as people who are sympathizers already, but not completely on board with you yet. And then also for party members as well, that they agree completely with what you said, but are a bit too critical, like we said before. Those people are who are just too much of a free-thinking person. So propaganda, then, really is a key thing to try and attract people outside the country, because it's got to appeal to people living in non-totalitarian countries. So in this given instance, Propaganda has to appeal to those out with Nazi Germany or out with communist Russia. And I have two good examples about how Nazi propaganda appealed to those outside of Germany. And the first one is the British Union of Fascists. And this is the British fascist political party formed by Oswald Mosley in 1932. And at one point, the party claimed to have 50,000 members and it was disbanded in 1940 by the government. And from this, we can see the influence of Nazi ideology out with of Germany. It is that influential that, in fact, a political party is created in Britain in order to uphold Nazi ideology. And that party is, of course, what we just said, the British Union of Fascists in 1932. And as well as it being reportedly as well, popular with 50,000 members. Another example that we have as well of the influence of Nazi ideology out with of Germany is another example coming from Britain in which we have 
the British Free Corps, which was created in 1943. It was a member of the Waffen-SS of Nazi Germany. And the idea came from John Emery, a British fascist and son of British Secretary of State for India, Leo Emery. John Emery actively tried to recruit Britons and made various German propaganda radio broadcasts. He was a former member of the British Union of Fascists and the initial members of the British Free Corps were prisoners of war. And so then we have those two examples, the first the creation of a British political party, the British Union of Fascists, and then an actual British core of the German army as well, all having been created through two Nazi sympathizers of Oswald Mosley for the British Union of Fascists and then John Emery for the British Free Corps. So not only do we have then the influence of trying to indoctrinate people from other countries to get onto their side, but also propaganda in the outside world is incredibly important for how the regimes can try and justify their actions and counter the other countries' propaganda against them. So it's kind of a double role, really, because within the war, every country's got its own system of propaganda at work. So we have the US propaganda, British propaganda, and so on. And then the Nazis are going to react to that propaganda by then creating their own, which is going to counter whatever they're trying to say in order to maintain that Nazis are doing nothing wrong, for instance. And we've had a example previously of that, which was the manifesto of the 93, which was from the 4th of October 1914, of course, dealing with the First World War here, that was a proclamation to the civilized world signed by 93 prominent German scientists, scholars, and artists that defended Germany's war actions, including the rape of Belgium. And that's when the German army invaded into Belgium and committed war crimes. And so even though we have an example from World War I there, it still backs up that whole role of how does propaganda work, is to try and counter precisely what the other countries are saying about you. And one of the things that they round off on for that manifesto of the 93 is that how it's the actions of a civilized country with an incredibly prestigious background of Gotha and Kant and so forth. So it's not just a barbarian horde, for instance, as they try to justify their whole actions for committing war crimes. So overall, then, we can say that the whole process is twofold. Then. On the one hand, we have indoctrination within the country, trying to get more people 
bored into believing exactly their ideology. That is specifically targeting this mass of indifferent people, as well as those sympathizers who, of course, sympathize with their views but are not completely on board, as well as those people who are even party members but are too free-thinking still. And then, for the propaganda aspect of it, it's all about trying to justify the actions of Germany and trying to further help towards the indoctrination of people in other countries. So, following on from this then, we're going to go in to discuss the role of science and why exactly does science take such a prominent role in their arguments for totalitarian regimes. And Arant gives a really fantastic discussion and background to exactly why science is so prominently used. And as she says and takes us back as well, the obsession with science began in the 16th century with the rise of mass in physics. And then we have the philosophy of positivism, such as that argued by Auguste Comte, who argues that the future is scientifically predictable. And the school of positivism, that is a school of thought within philosophy for positivism, is the view that the only authentic knowledge is scientific knowledge and that such knowledge can only come from a positive affirmation of its theories through strict scientific methods. But positivism also makes the argument that public interests are an all-persuasive force in history and that the object of laws of power can be discovered. So that's just a really fancy way of saying that there is an underlying trajectory towards how human history unfolds and falling in with the whole previous argument that signs can predict future events that we could also discover objective laws in the events within history. So we then have Arendt tackle a bit of political theory at the same time here, and this is from Henri Duke of Rohan, who says and has the argument that the king commands the people and the people's interest commands the king. The objective interest is the rule that always cannot fail, which is another way of putting it is what is the best interest for the majority rather than the minority. So we have here, as she says from the Duke of Rohan, this political theory that you can see is based upon very monarchical in its context that you have the king. What is exactly the whole extent of how the king has got to act? is commanding over the people, creating laws for the people to live under. Then what exactly sways that interest that the people have and the creation of laws, for instance? 
and that'll be from the people's interest. So let's say, for instance, if there's a specific problem that needs to be addressed, and let's say the creation of a law or the looking at specific event in order to address how the law will be applied to it and so forth, all this then commands how the king should act. So there's a nice reciprocal relation as we see. The king rules over the people, but ultimately what the people have within their own general view and so forth is ultimately got to reflect back onto the king who will then command over the people. Then we go into the whole point about it. Is it in the king's interest to therefore rule just for that minority? Let's say in this given instance, only acting in the best interest just specifically for the nobility or the clergy? No. Why is that the case? That it's not in the interest of a minority because the best rule is an objective one that is something that's best for everybody, regardless of where you are in society, what class you are, and so forth. And hence why the best action will be always done for the greatest majority of people rather than the minority. So we have a nice discussion of that political theory there, as well as then you can just move it into a form of government without a monarchy, in which you could say, well, how are politicians acting is in the same similar way, creation of laws or creation bills and so forth, all how to address specific things that are being created and so forth from all the problems that are happening. And you have that nice reciprocal relationships as well between how things should work between the politician acting in the best interest of everybody and then ultimately the interest of people within their own constituencies here in the UK or within each state and so forth like that will then have an effect upon what they'll address as a problem. And as Arendt says, this nicely forms the basis for the core of utilitarianism, positivism, socialism. This focus on what is the best objective interest for the greatest majority of people. And easily enough for utilitarianism, that is just the view of how do you reach the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people, which you have the two components of that, of the big British figures of Jeremy Bentham on the one hand and then John Stuart Mill on the other. So from all this as well, we also have the importance of human welfare. What can be done to resolve the problems of X? And X of course can be whichever specific problem that you fancy putting in there. So these are the two key points that sort of Arendt then builds upon. On the one hand, we have incredible amount of importance of science. 
signs as advocated as a force that will reach absolutely concrete knowledge and go to the very extreme of that with positivism it's the only way in which we can reach absolute certainty about things and then on the other hand whilst we deal with history there's all this move towards finding things within history that we can try and identify certain objective laws and so forth then we have that nice little tie-in there for the political theory as well so from all this building up of this really fantastic background we then go in to look at the totalitarian regimes as she says the propaganda is not focused upon the self-interest of the masses but rather as a collective for the future of the country there is no care for the welfare of the indifferent mass nor was political action based upon gaining something which the posh word for that is qui bono and this introduced the unheard of element of unpredictability so let's have a good discussion about these points then as she says pretty much the entirety of european history is all based upon the whole process of qui bono that is no action is done whatsoever unless something is gained by it and of course you can just use really really easy examples of that why would you want to invade another country is to go and take it over and to gain more land in order for you to therefore gain the country's resources and use them for your own there's that whole aspect therefore there, there's something to be gained by that whole process of invasion but here within the totalitarian regimes there's no longer this whole aspect of qui bono whatsoever your political actions are not at all based upon gaining something in the immediacy of it all your actions are completely done for a future state which completely throws a spanner in the works which is a nice way to put it why because political actions are always done upon immediacy of course that why would you want to do or resolve any problems because they're having an immediate effect so therefore you wouldn't think about political problems and so forth and how politicians would work is that you wouldn't expect them just to suddenly go wait a minute okay i've had this collection of people all come to me with this massive problem now i'm gonna go have a discussion and hopefully we'll get that resolved for you you don't expect them to turn around and say oh thank you very much for raising these concerns with me but i think in about maybe a thousand years actually that'll be sorted out by then and that's exactly the way in which rents trying to make us think about the way in which the totalitarian regimes have twisted the way 
that normally things work within political theory because things are not placed upon an immediacy of it to be resolved in the present, but rather all the problems are focused on being resolved in the future. And with that, of course, you have a complete unpredictability introduced because how are you going to know how to act is a good way of putting it. Because you're not going to be listening to the people anymore. You're going to be thinking all about the potential for the future. And therefore, all the actions are going to be done with thought and consideration for the future and not thought and consideration at all for the present. And hence why she says, one of the things that the totalitarian regimes have absolutely no care for is the indifferent mass, and they have absolutely no care for welfare of people whatsoever. And an example is that she uses is in Stalin when he said that there is precisely no unemployment whatsoever, and it was said within the whole propaganda to back that up for his claim that there's no such thing as unemployment, and therefore if there's no such thing as unemployment, you don't have to have any benefits going to the unemployed, because it's all based upon, she says, the old socialist saying of, he who doesn't work doesn't eat. And this goes into that whole Stalinist idea, everybody has to ultimately work for the economic benefit of Russia. And so, we can then build upon this and go in to look at the totalitarian regime's use of signs. As she says, we have, at the same time, within this whole build within history and importance of science itself, totalitarian regimes also emphasize the importance of science. But it's not to use actual scientific methods or emphasize the correctness of scientific knowledge, but rather it's to use the appearance of scientific knowledge in order to justify its own doctrines. And another way of putting it is so fantastic as a concept, as scientific prophecy as well. There's such a fantastic concept, scientific prophecy. And there's also a lovely quote here. Science is a surrogate for power. You can see exactly what she says here and understand it because it's taken all that awe that people have for science and accept at face value what science says and what scientists say as the truth. And therefore, they use that in order to justify their own claims and therefore their own claims are given a sense of power because it's backed up by the signs for it. And two examples that she uses is the Bolsheviks used a scientist's reputation to promote an unscientific purpose and they were turned into a charlatan and the Nazi regime turned away scientists, even those who were sympathizers. And so this is really the whole point of saying they don't care about actual science of things. 
they just care the fact that people like the look of science. They trust it, ultimately. There's been a thing that's since the 16th century, she says, has been built up and built up as a thing that everybody accepts is its truth in what it's saying. So therefore, what happens if suddenly a government just suddenly says, wait a moment, what if we just suddenly say, the scientists say this? It'll back up exactly what we're saying. And funnily enough, there's a nice crossover that she uses with advertising. And it's a discussion that is all about soap. In which she says the advert is saying to girls, if you don't use this specific brand of soap, then you'll get pimples and also you'll never ever get a husband. And what is all this, of course, doing to the girl is to make her incredibly self-conscious about herself, reflect about the horror of having pimples and the horror of not having a husband. Therefore, oh my god, I need to go and rush out and get this specific brand of soap because it'll protect me from the horror of pimples and it'll ensure the sanctity of potential marriage. So not only do we have that whole psychological level going on within the advert that she's talking about, but we also have that relation that she says into power because there's that whole idea of monopoly going on at the same time. Which is to say, not only are they saying that you need to buy this brand of soap to protect you from pimples and guarantee you a husband, but rather it's also emphasizing that this is the only brand that's going to guarantee that. And so it has that subtle emphasis upon gaining that monopoly within it, trying to outdo the competitors and so forth. But as she said, we shouldn't get too bogged down by trying to compare totalitarian propaganda and so forth to advertise. And really the main thing to take away from all that is just that relation into how there's that emphasis upon signs. As in within the advert, she says, the, backed up by our research and research departments that will guarantee that it will keep your skin absolutely clear, looking healthy, looking perfect, looking pure. Or there's always that Colgate advert that comes back into my head for toothpaste. Colgate's always talking about how their toothpaste will make your teeth whiter than white. Which is what a statement. Not only is it going to be white teeth, but whiter than white teeth. And it's all backed up by their research department and their scientists. And they'll guarantee you'll have an absolutely perfect smile. So, great example there as well for toothpaste. For another example as well, not only just soap. All backed up, of course. Not just claims, but claims backed up by science. 
And that's the whole point about it, is to have that emphasis upon signs to back up your claims. And therefore the science gives it a form of power because people will believe what you say because it's backed up by that science. And here's the irony, of course, like we've said, do they actually care about in the regimes about actual science itself? No, not in the absolute slightest. And as we said, and we shouldn't get too bogged down in the relation between advertisements and totalitarian propaganda because, as she also says, an advertisement's not trying to completely change you and to make you completely a different person from who you are now. All what they want to try and do is ultimately make you go and buy the product. But within totalitarian propaganda and the whole process of indoctrination is to transform you. And so let's build a bit on that idea then. And it sort of goes back into that whole process of indoctrination that we did to start with. What is that whole process to transform a person? Is for them to utterly, totally and fanatically believe in the ideology. Unquestioningly. So that's why it has to be at that level of fanaticism, because only fanaticism has that level of an uncritical edge to it. There's no critical thinking, basically, within fanaticism, because everything is all accepted at complete face value. And so we've had that relation into science that is ultimately used to back up and try and justify its own doctrines. And then we also have that relation into history. Well, that is to say that there's discovered hidden forces in history that will bring them good fortunes in the chain of fatality. All the events of history are linked by a chain of fatality and suppress men from the history of the human race. And the example of this that she uses is from Stalin, which is the more we recognize history and class, the more we conform to dialectical materialism. So that in and of itself is mind-blowing because here you have one of the absolute key concepts for Marx to be instilled within the our whole ideology that it will precisely affect how you think as well as how things will unfold in the future. And let's have a nice quick summary of what exactly dialectical materialism is. And this is from Oxford Reference. The dominant philosophical strain of Marxism, combining materialism as an embracing philosophy of nature and science with the Hegelian notion of dialectic as a historical force, driving events onwards 
towards a progressive revolution of the contradictions that characterize each historical epoch. The combination was perhaps first fully developed by Ingalls in Annie During, written in 1878. Human thought itself aims to mirror the uniform but contradictory character of external reality. Plakhanov and Lenin interpreted dialectical materialism as implying that the nature of the world coincided with the ideals of the revolution and the heady belief that history itself guarantees the victory of one's own cause or party has proved one of the most widely alluring consolations of philosophy. So, overall, what can we get from dialectical materialism? We have, on the one hand, this incredible importance upon nature and science again, and on the other hand, combining that with the Hegelian dialectic. And it's not too much of a difficult, really, idea to come into understand. It's just simply Hegel has one of the key underlying things for his philosophy is that everything unfolds in a dialectic. That is that you would have a thesis and an antithesis is a posh way of putting it. That you have both one thing and that has its opposite. Like you have good and you have bad, for instance. And the way in which that works within history is that history unfolds within great dialectical movement and that ultimately how does that relate into the Russian Revolution? As it fantastically says there, it's trying to think about how your own aim is then justified through dialectical materialism, ultimately, guaranteeing victory for your party. And even if your party hasn't got victory now, that because of how the dialectic works, it'll have victory in the future. And interestingly enough, that's one of the reasons in which the Communist Party in Nazi Germany as well would never accept complete defeat is because that whole process that she says that Arendt points to of this is because of the whole view of dialectical materialism that eventually they'll think they'll win in the future. And on the opposite end of the scale as well, and from Nazi Germany we have that whole emphasis upon the Thousand Year Reich is that driving force for history and for the unfolding of exactly the Nazi ideology as well. And so we have this incredible emphasis upon science as well as the future. And therefore, Arendt says, the leader then takes upon a role of becoming a prophet in order to dictate how the future events will unfold. And this is based upon a correct interpretation of the forces of history, 
of nature that will assert themselves in the long run. It's the leader's so concerned to guarantee that his predictions will always be true. The leaders are always infallible and terror and violence is used in order to realize its ideological doctrines. And so this then takes upon a really interesting point that since there's all this emphasis upon history and the future, the leaders themselves of Hitler and Stalin then become prophets in precisely the fact that their proclamations become prophetic. And one of the things that you could say to that would be, well, surely it's all just based upon rubbish, that we're going down the whole road of everything being complete nonsensical here. We're suddenly going into one man saying he can see how history is going to unfold. How can you just believe what he says? Surely they would just make up a bunch of complete rubbish and lie to everybody. And this is where Arendt says, no. In fact, Hitler and Stalin very much spoke the truth. And there was complete conviction in what they said and what they stated was going to happen actually happened. Because then that's the whole purpose of it as well. It's not to lie to everybody. What's the sole concern with it all is that your prediction or proclamation, however you want to put it, is correct. And how are you going to guarantee that you're correct? Through violence and terror. So this is where you ultimately have a statement and then you back up your words through violence and terror to make sure that what you've just said is going to happen does happen. And so the statement then is retroactively backed up once the violence has been carried out. And Arendt uses two examples, one from Hitler and another from Stalin. So let's have a look at the first example then from Hitler, in which it says here... Hitler's announcement to the Reichstag in January 1939. I want today once again to make a prophecy in the case of Jewish financiers succeed once more in hurling the peoples into a world war. The result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. And this is where Arendt comes in. Translated into non-totalitarian language, this meant, I intend to make war, I intend to kill the Jews of Europe. And I think that's just absolutely fantastic as how she just manages to take that one line from Hitler and say, actually, this is what this statement ultimately translates into. On the one hand, I intend to make war and I intend to kill the Jews of Europe. And then the example from Stalin, as she says here, similarly Stalin, in the great speech before the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1930, in which he prepared 
the physical liquidation of intraparty right and left deviations described them as representatives of dying classes. This definition not only gave the argument its specific sharpness, but also announced in totalitarian style the physical destructions of those whose dying out had just been prophesied. In both instances, the same objective is accomplished. The liquidation is fitted into a historical process in which man only does or suffers what, according to immutable laws, is bound to happen anyway. So, that is quite an incredible thing to think about, how when Hitler or Stalin would say something that then that's going to be completely backed up through murder and violence and so forth and to make sure that what they're saying is absolute and infallible. Of course, then you say to me, well, they didn't tell the truth all the time. And one example, of course, comes from Hitler in which Arendt says Hitler lied and had monstrous lies to the generals and he suddenly didn't go out and murder them all and of course the reply back to that is well of course you wouldn't want to murder all the generals you want to get them on your side but then that backs up the whole point of well even if they're telling lies it's still having that whole process of indoctrination and getting them on your side so there's just this whole process within the totalitarian regimes of indoctrination, getting people on your side, be it through lies, be it through the propaganda, and so on. It's all to try and get as many people on board and believing in your ideology. And so that nicely lets us come to round up then and cover everything that we've discussed as well. So, Totalitarian regimes are concerned with indoctrination and getting as many people as possible to believe in their doctrine. Propaganda is used to indoctrinate people in non-totalitarian countries, justify the regime's actions and prevent party members from free thinking. Science is used as an idol and a means of power in order to justify its own doctrine and its quest to transform the nature of humanity. History is transformed and manipulated in order to conform to the regime's view and represents a set of good forces that will benefit the future of the country. And as we said, that is dialectical materialism for Russia and the idea of the thousand-year Reich for Nazi Germany. And one of the things I didn't touch upon much was how history itself was transformed and manipulated in order to conform to the regime's view. And Arendt uses the example of how Stalin rewrote the history of the Russian Revolution with the new history of the Russian Revolution, which is published as the history of the Communist Party of Soviet Union, and that was released in the 1st of October 1938. And then we also had off as well. The leader acts as a prophet in correctly interpreting 
historical forces and will ensure that their predictions are always correct through the use of terror and violence. So then, in the next episode, we will be continuing on reading through the section Totalitarian Propaganda. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Drop me an email at my address, dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. Dip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy, ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.